Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now count from a hundred back to one. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and thanks again for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is another friend, named Carl Wegforth, or known regionally as Weggy. Carl stops by today to discuss how he came to terms with his alcoholism and how he came to understand the disorder had an effect on him when he wasn't drinking. How this was brought to light and forced to be dealt with was Carl found out he had cirrhosis uh, in a serious way. We discuss how one prepares a family, children, to come to terms and understand that he might die before there's hope of a liver transplant. We talk about that exhausting experience in a year where someone measures their own mortality and how it reinforced his commitment to sobriety and a new way of life, which became uh, quite moving while we were discussing it. So I look forward to you meeting Leggy. All right, we're live with Weggy. Carl is uh, a friend of mine. I met, I had to be 12 years old, and I got a gig to Busboy a couple weekends here and there, where my sister was a waitress at Carmela's on, in Bunker Hill, Pennsylvania, in Dunmore. And Carl, I thought, was my boss. <laughs> And Carl worked there as well. And do you have any memories of this? Yeah, I do, Joe. I remember working, um, and I think I was your boss. Yeah, you were, but I tell you, <laughs> I was bust your chops. I thought you were already like had a wife and kids. You were like two years older than me. Well, at that age, I actually was a little older than I. I thought I was older than I was myself. <laughs> you had a beard. No, I didn't. <laughs> Not yet. But. Um, it was a great place. Um, my brother worked there for a period of time um, and wonderful people. Um, so, Carl, uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about your story into recovery. But for a little background, tell me about growing up in, in Dunmore. How would you how would you describe your childhood? 
um, I had a I had a real good childhood. Um, I didn't come from a, a um, very wealthy family or anything, but um, we didn't want for anything. Um, my parents got divorced when I was um, five years old. Um, my my father remarried shortly thereafter, which I was blessed with um, a, a two great sisters then, um, and, and then it was a great home life. Um, growing up, nothing was out of the ordinary. Um, it was uh, it was uh, just a normal normal life. Um, there was no problems at home, nothing like that. Um, I do remember from an early age, though, like uh, birthday parties was always a party, not just a birthday party for for the kids. There was always a party going on at my house. There's a second party happening. For sure. And what did that look like to you if you had to remember from the eyes of the the child that age, like without an adult lens? What what did it look like to you? Well, I, I know the adults had just as much fun at our parties as the kids did. You know, the, there was usually, you know, quite a bit of drinking going on. Um, and everybody seemed to have fun. It never was a problem in my childhood that I saw. Well, let me ask you this. Did, was it easier because of those parties to connect with the adults in a way that seemed more meaningful than when they weren't drinking? I, I think we were, I was probably always treated a little at that time, not so much as the kid, as as a kid, you know what I mean. So there's benefits to watching adults drink alcohol, right? And for sure, it seemed like a blast. Yeah, like I, I don't remember ever arguing or or any problems like that. Everything always seemed fun. And was there any fear involved? Would things ever change during those parties? Like that, you were like, "There's a dark side to this." No, no never. It was always, you know. Um, rock and roll playing and, and everybody had a good time. I never saw any problem in it. All right. Let's fast forward to high school in the sense of when drinking became something that you knew you could rely on. How did, how did that happen? And, and what did drinking mean to you, for you emotionally, maybe in, in, in regards to giving you something that maybe you couldn't give to yourself? Well, I always, and even go back to the Carmelo's days, you know, I was pretty young um, after after a night of working and, and the older guys that were there, you know, I might have had a, a, a cocktail after work at, at a very young age because, um, you know, just like those guys, I worked hard and I deserved one. And, um, you know, your brother was behind the bar and, and all of their friends were out at that bar and it was that's really where I wanted to be. It was, you know, I was 12, 13, 14 years old and all these um, 20 year olds are at the bar on a Friday, Saturday night. And, and it seemed like an awful lot of fun to me. Uh, that whole crew too is pretty dynamic. They looked like movie stars to me when I was a kid, when you, you know, my brother, Eugene, Mo, all these guys, uh, I don't know. There was. They looked like they they were having fun. They didn't have a care in the world, and they were they were like for, wild. for sure. They um, the Goodfellas movie just came out, <laughs> yeah. and, and um, they used to call me the Kid Henry, and um, I, I wanted to be a gangster. I thought that was that was that was going to be great. Um, obviously, it didn't come to fruition, but which is a good thing. Um, and then of course, like the rest of our friends in Dunmore, <clears throat> underage drinking, 
down to cemetery, up the woods, football games. Um, and I usually had a lot to do with throwing the parties. And uh, so I was always <clears throat> pop. I was a popular kid. Uh, and I didn't, I, I don't know if throwing the parties helped that, but, but I <clears throat> usually got along with everybody. And it was always a fun atmosphere. Um, then my, at the time, my father was kind of like a manager at Hiles. And I started bouncing there. Still in high school, working at the door. Wow. And then I really saw that this is what this is where I want to be. You know, that's where the action is. Um, so I was always around it. Yeah. Always around the partying. And they're really... From that perspective of what you're describing to me now, there seems to be no other way to look at things except through, I don't want to generalize to nightlife, but that the center of all activity could be in a bar, in a restaurant. It, it was, for sure. That, that, was, um, that was my main focus. Yeah. And, and I didn't see a lot of problems or consequences. For, and when I say that, it's, it's, um, there was plenty of times that the Dahmer police, um, had intervened, I would say, but, um, we, you know, we knew who the magistrate was obviously, and there'd be a good chance we'd be, um, understood, understood. <laughs> um, so there wasn't a lot of consequences. Um, yeah. even at a, at a, at that time frame, I got in a bad quad accident. Don't wear corners. Um, um, uh, in a coma for for, for a little oh, while. I, I remember um, that. Dr- drilling my head, and and I got up, you know, out of the hospital in a couple of days. Um, Anthony Colley was there to welcome me with a DUI. <clears throat> I was right back at it. Yeah. Short shortly, and and I didn't. I made it out. I mean, it took a terrible toll on my family. I know the distress, but I didn't, I, I made it out. You know, I walked out of there in a couple of days, and I don't think it was long after that that I was right back at it. Well, let me ask you this, Carl. Was, was there a connection between drinking and the accident that, did you just not make a connection, or you thought, this is just normal, that it's just bad luck? Um, I thought it was... It's, I come, I, I, I survived it. I come out of it and it's like, Oh, you know, that was like a story. Oh, he, he was doing 70 miles an hour on a quad. Oh my God. That's like, it was almost cool. A, a trophy. It was almost a trophy. Um, and any normal thinking person, I think would have said, let's take it, let's slow down here. And, and I didn't, I didn't, um, slow down. Like I said, I was back in it. How old were you? So I just turned, it was April. I just turned 18. 18. I, I, I remember that. That was scary. So were there lingering consequences from that physically? <laughs> that depends what you ask, I guess. <laughs> um, you don't look different to me, man. No, gotta... I, I had a lot of, my face was messed up pretty good with stitches and staples and what have you. But um, not, not, not really. So it's 18. So by 18, there's... Alcohol compromised the situation. Would you say that got you in a ser- almost a life threatening accident in that sense? For for sure. But um, it, with that, the DUI aspect of it, right? DUI, you can't afford it, and all this. 
it's billboards and um, the consequences because of people that we were friends with and so on and so forth weren't necessarily what a regular person may. And let's put that into context. This is a really small community. It's Dunmore. And some of the help that you would receive on the back end of say a scenario like that looks like the real help someone wanted. So your life's not ruined that you're not straddled with some financial burden. This was an accidental. You, you've never have been criminal or violent in that sense. So is, is that kind of the perspective? Someone you, you were viewing it as this, this is the help. This is help. Someone's helping. Yeah, they're helping you out. They're yeah. helping you out. Um, and, and, and so the trouble wasn't that big. I went through the ARD program and, and I, I passed that. And Good job. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so I moved on to my, um, and I get, you know, you're up to 21 years old per se at that age. And, um, I kept asking John Isle, I wanted to bark then. I wanted to bark. That was my, you know, and eventually I got there. I got to the point he gave me a Saturday afternoon and, um, a bachelorette party came in. I remember, and I was scared to death and I, I was, they wanted frozen drinks and the bottom of the mix, the blender fell off, it spilled all over the front of me. And, um, that, that's how my first day bartending went. But I said, well, if that happened today, I could handle any of this. And before you know it, I was there five nights a week. And that was a hopping bar in our area. Yeah. Act. What was it? And the big night was Mondays. Honestly. Monday night. It was a Monday night. You had to be at Hiles. Yeah, 800 people be coming through the door. And with that comes all the other bartenders from Tinks, the Woodlands, the Bouncers, you know, um, the Grotto at Harvey's Lake. So you know every bartender every bouncer in the area. So when, when you weren't there working anywhere you went, you didn't pay the cover. The, everybody knew you, the drinks were free. And it was, you know. It's it, a lifestyle. It, Restaurants it, and bars are a lifestyle. And so you're getting out of work at what time? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name's Joe Van Wee. the host of All Better. But I'm also the CEO Fellowship House. Now, Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the Fellowship of Recovery which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self, and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, 
and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. We'd get, we, well, we'd close during the week at two and we'd leave there at four. Four or five. And yeah, they, John used to tell us the alarm would go off at four if we weren't gone. <laughs> so, so we'd be out of there by four. Um, and then you would either go home or you wouldn't. And then what time you would sleep till what time? Sleep till, till noon or something. And at that point, I was actually running the lake um, every day. Um, I was always a little insecure about my weight. Yeah. So at that point I was really working on it a lot, working on it. So I'd get up and go run the lake and, um, and that's three miles. You run it three miles in the morning after putting a shift in like that. That's yeah. pretty, that's a, that's a lot of resiliency. That's pretty tough. And then I'm um, back to, I was back at Hiles at four at the time I had just started going up, um, Lake Wallenpaw pack. I met some friends up there. So, um, Friday night after work, I'd head up there. I'd be up at the lake till, um, you know, right after work. And I'd stay there till, till Monday, till Monday morning. At this point, what would you say your, your, your number one goal or, or, or dream was? Like at that age, you're now bartending five nights a week in one of the area's most popular bars. What was your, what was your dream at that point? What would be the perfect life? From that point, I don't know that I had a plan, a dream. Yeah. Then I, I did um, enroll in the Penn State because the rest of the bartenders were going to school, and I figured I better, um, I better do something. So I enrolled for an MIS program, which is funny because I hate computers. Yeah, what's MIS? Management Information Systems at the time. Oh boy, that sounds really awful. It was terrible, <laughs> and, and it, I, I went through. Um, about a year and a half, and I ran into somebody saying that, that um, Nibs was looking for me. They were looking for a full-time employee with the Dumber DPW. And, and at the time, the, the price was right. I quit Penn State and started that, which which was a good job. So now I was working for Dunmore and bartender full-time. Um, and at that age, that's a lot of money. It was a lot of money. And you're probably making far more than anyone you went to school with, because if they were in school or at that age, they're not making that. No, I, but, I was making $1,000 a week cash at Isles. Yeah. And, and then working for the, for, for the borough. Um, I did end up with a second DUI, leaving a, a bachelor party. Some friends took my keys, and they had... Wandered off, and I grabbed them out of her purse, and um, I figured I could make it home, and I got my second one. Little more consequences, but not a lot more though. Yeah, B- because um, like you said, they were helping me out. That time I ended up with, with thirty days house arrest, but they let me still. I was at, enrolled in Penn State. They let me work at Hyle still, so I had to be home Sunday for about eight hours. Did you go to treatment then? For, would you, were you required to go to an out, drug and alcohol treatment center? I did my, my dad's again. Yeah, just dad's. Just dad's. Okay. Um, which was not, I didn't take it seriously. I had no intention of taking it seriously. I haven't met anyone who has. Right. So, so I, I you know, and um, 
I took the accelerator program for, for like four Saturdays or whatever it was and got my little diploma and I was on my way. Um, you know, I probably stopped at Cockeyed Oscars or something on the way up out of Scranton. Yeah. I did have to go to them. Um, 30 AA meetings with that sentence. And did you? I went to one. Yeah. And I went down to, um, I don't remember the street. I still stopped there at meetings, but um, they used to be in a gym in the back of the church. Hmm. And um, I took Teddy Kalinowski with me. And uh, and after the meeting, I told them they had to sign it. And, and they put their initials. I said, no, you have to sign the, the paper. And they said, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not going to sign it. So I left there and I went to Hiles and I passed it around the bar <laughs> and got the rest of the, um, the signature signatures out the bus. Yep. And I was good to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it, so still at that time in, at Hiles, um, actually my father had hired my wife as a waitress. She wasn't my wife then, obviously. Um, and she was still going to school in Philadelphia and um, we had a long-term relationship, long distance rather, for um, for about a year. And, and then she was moving back home, and uh, we moved in together then. So we had a house to were renting in Dunmore. And my drinking was still, um, it was daily. Yeah. Daily, almost um, nonstop. Nonstop. Any, any time at, that you experienced withdrawal during this time? Outside of a, just maybe your standard hangover, a little dehydrated, blurry eyes, were you, were you experiencing blurry vision, maybe the sweats, or any hands shaking? Not at that point, Not probably that, still. Yeah. Um, so then, I don't know the exact year, but we decided, me and my father, collectively to um, purchase a bar. What year is this? Twenty, night maybe nineteen twenty, two thousand nineteen, somewhere in there. Two thousand, yeah. Um, and the only problem that I ever had with argue, we didn't. Me and my wife never fought about my drinking yeah. or anything to that order. But um, finances have come up at that point. Yeah, because um, to drink as much as I did cost a lot of money. So if I bought a bar, right, I didn't have to pay for my drinks anymore. It's <laughs> a strategy behind that. And I don't know if it was a strategy then. I don't know if that was a uh, my plan, but it was definitely a subconsciously something was, you know, and now I can explain why I was at, the, at a bar. Yeah, you're working. I have to be there. I have to, I have to keep an eye on things. Even if I'm not working, per se, I got to keep an eye on <laughs> Everything. And this was the bar on Drinker Street, right? Wait, it was Jim, and it was it was, it was the original Jimmy's. Jimmy's. Yeah, I remember because if you go to O'Hara, you know what Jimmy's is, right? Then it became Weggies. Correct. It was um, that was a headquarters for everyone I knew from Dunmore for for, for quite some time. Yeah, um, and, and so that was you know that was another on, on an alcoholic's belt. Like that was another check that I had. Yeah. Um, Still not a lot of problems. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. There was a getting to be problems because, you know, now I was getting home later yet. You know, before that, I, I would, j just your 
what you would expect from me from the amount of drinking I was doing. Yeah. Um, I guess you could say. <clears throat> and then um, I'm trying to get my, my time frames together here, but in the process, my father passed away. We, we got rid of the bar. <clears throat> You know, we got rid of the bar, and um, it was about a year later, um, <clears throat> I got a phone call, and my father had passed away, which was, uh, it was devastating, um, to, and to say the least. He was my best friend, um, and, and <clears throat> excuse me, and, and uh, we went through the whole funeral, the whole process, from from the minute I got down to the to my mother's house, you know my parents' house, people started showing up, and and the booze was getting delivered. You know, people were dropping dropping booze off, dropping alcohol off, cases and cases and cases of beer, and that's what we always did. Um, you and I both have lost a lot of friends through this, and uh, we in, in mourning you, you drank. In celebration, you drink for, for for whether you're mourning any anything and whatever yeah. whatever happened, you drink and you drink a lot of it. And, and we went through the whole the whole process: the funeral, after funeral dinner at Carmela's, of course, and um, that was a Thursday. And Friday, I told my wife, "I'm going to go. I'm going to work. I have to get back to normal here, you know." And, and I didn't. And I went drinking six thirty in the morning. Like it was my job. And I did that for, for three years. I, um, any chance, any, I didn't need an excuse anymore. I just was, I never mourned it. And, and all I could do to get out, to not think about it and not think about anything is, is to drink. And yeah. we, at this point we have three children um, I was there, and I keep saying this. I don't know if it's still a, a lie I'm telling myself, but I, I was there for all of the kids' stuff. Yeah. But not not really. In body, I was. But in a hurry, I was always in a hurry to go looking at my watch. What time's it going to be over? Because I got to make it. I got to go help Joe move a couch. Yeah. You know, there was never a couch. There was a Joe, but... But we, you know, there was never, it was always some kind of um, made up story to, to go drinking. Um, I see that a lot. The hardest cases of maybe people that would have denial that seem to be what they would like to, you know, designate themselves as a functional alcoholic. I, they never take into account what they're not there for. Maybe they're not having the arguments or, or, or the, the direct harms, but they're not there. You're just absent, even when you are present. And I, I, I'm really glad you interest, uh, mentioned that because is this the life I want? The guy that's in a hurry, I can never be present unless I'm in the bar getting my medication, essentially, to this, this growing anxiety, this revving motor that's in my gut, my chest, to go be somewhere else all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrible way to live, but I didn't see it that way then. And I, I, I know how much you care about your family and, and, and all the, 
what kind of father you are, which is, is great. I, it's, it's not too often you hear someone already start to understand those consequences of not, not being present. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I had somebody tell me last year about it. And for all the activities I'm doing with my children, as I said, which I think I was, but I, but I, in reality, I, I wasn't. And she said to me, are you making up for something? And she kind of said it as a little shot. And um, at first I was, I was very offended by it. Sure. And, to, and the reason I was so offended by it was because she's right. Yeah. You know, um, she, she was right. And so this is starting to crack. You're starting to notice it during the drinking. And are you getting any relief from drinking around this period? You know, you, you have unresolved grief. Is there any point where you have to, where you're getting just this drunk? Oh, there it is. Like, do you have to be totally annihilated to get? No, I, okay. I wasn't. Um, I was getting no relief at this point now. Um, I, I didn't want to drink anymore. I, I was to the point that I knew that, that I knew I didn't want it. Um, still, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't fighting in the house. Um, I was just existing though. Yeah. And, and in the morning I was so sick. I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't, it, it was, it was uh, the shakes all day. Um, my work performance w was, was horrendous. To, to, um, I'm tenfold over now and, and thank God they, they stuck with me through this. Um, that, that since then it, it's, I get a lot of that of boys for, for the progress I'm making, but, um, I was, like I said, there was, I, I went from having so much fun that, that I was in hell. I, I was literally in hell and, and I didn't know a way out. I didn't know a way out. Um, there was no relief. I didn't ever get drunk. Yeah. Like, the, like a drunk you used to get. And at this point, did you think you even understood what AA was? Like, that's just not for me. That's not going to, like, did you have an idea, even if it was wrong, about what Alcoholics Anonymous was? I, I did, because I knew some people in the program, and, and um, I kind of fast forward there. I have gone in the past. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not going to say that I'm, I, I ever relapsed, because I've gone to some meetings, and I usually stop before and after for some drinks. Yeah, just pop and, in. And, and just, I was doing it so that I could say I went. Yeah. Um, I did go down with some help from John H. Um, at one point to see uh, John Silent K. And I went in to, to, to do like a little exam, per se, down at the ice rink one time. Yeah. And um, he gave me a couple little tests. And he said, um, you need to go to Marworth. You studied hard. You passed. <laughs> and, and I, I said, what do you mean? He said, you need to go to treatment. I was like, when? He said, right now. Today. I said, okay, let me call my wife. Phew, in the truck. I was gone. I went home. And she said, what did he say? I said, he said, I probably got to go to a couple meetings. You know, because that's not what I wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, so, so I knew what it was. And, and it wasn't going to work for me. I was sure of it. Yeah. Um, so, so then, at, like I said, at that point, I was very dependent on alcohol, sickly dependent. And um, 
So it would have been like May of 2000, thereabouts. And you got to bear with me because the time got really uh, sketchy around then. But I passed out one night. Not a drunk passed out. Something physical was wrong with me. So I got taken on the hospital. And um, I had a hospital stay for a couple of days. And it was, um, my liver enzymes were up. Sodium had plummeted, and uh, everything to do with alcoholism. And uh, I think I was there for two days at that point, and they were releasing me. And, and my wife was at work, and I called somebody to come and get me. And he and they, what do you need? I said, well, I need beer, of course, and cigarettes. And I got picked up at the first hospital stay. That's how I got picked up. And my health continued to. De- to deteriorate in that time frame from May moving forward through that summer. And I continued to drink. I saw my primary doctor, Dr. Dempsey. At that point, I was getting jaundice. Eyes were yellow. Um, he told me, you know, you're going to die if you don't quit drinking. And I said, okay, I'll quit drinking. And he referred me. I went to UPenn to see the liver specialist. And they, they you know, Said the same thing. You need to quit drinking. My liver enzymes at that time were up to um, almost 200. And what's the normal one? You- 40. Jesus. Well, between 10 and, and 50, but like 40 is good. And, and this whole time, you know, some would call the term cognitive, uh, you know, disassociation, dissonance, uh, distortions. You have to avoid the idea that you're going to die. Are you just uh, like it's something you could deal with tomorrow? I didn't think they were correct on their diagnosis. <laughs> you, you had an opposite opinion of yeah. I, I, you know, with my uh, medical background, I was sure that they were wrong on all of this. Um, wow! And as I said, I couldn't couldn't, couldn't stop them. Yeah, it, it, that was um. It was terrible. I, I was stuck in this hole, and 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 even at that point, I was I was on the verge of debating whether or not that I was probably better off to be dead, anyways. Yeah. So so I didn't see the use in, and this went on through um through the summer, through the summer um, and just a recent conversation, as a matter of fact, last week with my wife um. I asked her, do you know, did you, you knew I was drinking. And she said, no, I, I didn't. Or, or I wouldn't let myself believe you were. Yeah, yeah. You know, she, she wanted to not believe that I was drinking. Because I couldn't have been that good at hiding it then. Because, um. But it's amazing what you can block out when you think someone might be giving up on their own life. So you can't allow yourself to believe it. Um. The pain's just too great to let that kind of reality come into your head that you were giving up. Right. So um, I, I ended up in and out of the hospital all all, all summer from from May into um. It would have been October six, seven, eight. Um, I passed out again. Down the hospital, and um. And now at this point, they knew. You know, I was a regular. No, no, I wasn't drinking. And um, I seized it. 
I had a seizure from the, um, they, they could have medicated me, but with me lying to them, they, they didn't. And when I seized them, it, it was a, a disaster. Um, black and blue from my, my neck, my chest, everything. Um, I bit a big piece of my tongue off. And I woke up in the, in the ICU or whatever the situation. And, and my wife was standing there crying. And I finally told her I was done. Um, wasn't this, you know, white light experience thing, but, but, but I, I, I said, I'm done. And, and, um, I, I believed it for, for, it wasn't like the other hundred times that I was done. And she was on the phone with Philly, with, with um, my, my doctor in Philly. And they were more or less telling her at this point that, you know, okay, he's done again. Now, I, at this point, I was getting blood work once a week, yeah. telling him I wasn't drinking. And, and they never said anything. I'd be down Philly every two weeks or whatever. And they would never say anything about me drinking. I was like, ha, you know, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> well, they, they were getting the, the blood results, but they're not going to, it's not their job to preach to me about drinking. Yeah. Their job is if I want to help, then they'll help me. But they, there's 50 other people in the waiting room. And they told me this the next week when I went down and I finally surrendered and I was a mess. And um, she told me, Carl, there's, there's 50 people out there that, that have liver disease that want to help themselves until you want to help yourself. We can't help you. Wow. That's, did that help kind of wake you well, up to the, so at this point I was a couple of days sober. Um, you know, I seized and I, and, and, and that's my sobriety day. Yeah. October 8th. And it could have been the sixth, seventh, or but who's, who's sure. So I went to him. I went up to Marworth. Now I got a ride up there. They took my license because of the seizure. And I went up to Marworth and I walked in the bottom building because I was was not familiar with it. And I was looking for a room. And um, my counselor Gina said, "Well, you're not going to stay here now." Excuse me. Let me get a drink. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, so she said that um, you're not going to have to stay because you already detoxed and you've been X amount of days sober. She's like, what if somebody dropped you off up here? I told her I'd be down with grats. She's like, well, you know where the closest bar is. I said, I, I do, <laughs> and it's all downhill. So against my better judgment, she put me in intensive outpatient um, care. And uh, now at that point, I'm still in complete liver failure. Jesus. Um, so, you know, we're back and forth to Philly now. Every And like I said, the lot is blurry in this time frame. But we're back and forth to Philly, and um. They're, they're hoping that I'm going to regenerate because, you know, your liver is your only organ in your body that could heal itself if you didn't do enough damage to it. Irreversible damage. Right. Um, so I um, now I also had a, a liver condition, chromohematosis. What's that? It, it, it's a liver disease. Okay. <clears throat> I'm not going to blame my situation on that, though. Sure. I for sure helped that out to 110%. So, so I don't want to 
make an excuse of why this so all happened. So drinking daily for 20 years did have an effect. <laughs> to correct. A little bit, a small fraction of the, of the problem, <laughs> of course. Um, so I was making my, you know, my treatments whenever I had to go up there. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was four nights a week. I, I don't, like I said, it was, because um, Gina still bust me, you know, I came strolling in there and, and I was in rough shape. Um, so I did that from October till till around the holidays. December, it'd be 90 days or. Okay. And well, I still talk to her. Yeah. You know, I still, I'm still doing a little bit of it. I'm, I'm discharged per se, but I need all the help I can get still. So I, um, around the holidays there, I, um, fell again and you pen told CMC not, they're not allowed to touch me anymore. They sent an ambulance for me, brought me down, and they, uh, I was in such bad shape. No, you, you need to be six months sober to get put on the liver transplant list. And they determined that I was not going to survive this without a transplant. So they said that they were going to, uh, my, my, my doctor at the time, Divya Roberts, went to the transplant team at UPenn because evidently she had enough faith in me. At five and a half months sober, she felt that I was going to stick this out. And um, she talked the transplant team into giving me the workup. And if I, could survive, if I could survive a transplant, if they would put me on the list. So I was down there for, I think, 11 days. Could be off on that. And um, it's a series of testing. They're not going to give you a transplant if you're not going to live to survive the surgery, you know. So um, I, I survived, the, or I passed the, the testing, and they put me on the list. Um, How are you dealing with anxiety then? Was there anxiety? Where was your mindset that you thought, maybe I'm making a mistake, I should just give, like I, I, I could think this way, give up and drink. I'm definitely not going to make it, but I might as well be drunk. If this is the little time I had left. Was that ever going through your head? Not now. Not now. You, your full bore commitment. You're good. You, even if you're going to die, were you going to die sober? Yes. I, I was, wow. um, so I was fully, <clears throat> yeah, I, I was ready to, if I was going to die, I was going to die sober. And I was actually accepting that I was going to die. Wow. Like that's, um, I remember running into you here and there and it just, it's intense, man. I, yeah, it definitely was. Um, I was just trying to do my best to put a show on for my kids. I thought I was. Yeah. They were scared to death. I thought I was putting this. this. Were they understanding? Did they understand what was going on? Uh, my older son did. Yeah. You know, Hunter, he's just 12 now. Yeah. So yeah, I that took a toll on him. Yeah. Um, And, and I was still... I remember one time it was probably in the fall still there that I had taken my younger son to a, a baseball game. And, and at the end there, I was down to 118 pounds and I fell. And, and because of the medicines I was on, I was bleeding. They were trying to get an ambulance. Now I was getting confrontational because I didn't want my, and my son, he ran on the baseball field. And, um, it was terrible, you know, cause he was scared. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a real tough, hard time. 
And uh, so that they gave me all the testing and uh, a lot of that from then till a lot of it I don't remember. I was, I was kind of just going through the motions. Um, and I, and uh, right before, it was the end of March, it was April, my wife's family had a wedding down at a ski resort in Allentown, and my wife didn't want me to go. Not that she didn't want me to go, but... Scared. Um, right before that, she had gotten a phone call that I had about two weeks to live. And uh, I didn't know about it. So I, uh, I said, no, I'm going to this wedding, you know. So we had to go get me a new suit because I was never 118 pounds since yeah. fifth grade. No, probably not then either. Um, and I went down with my, me, her, and my son went down. And it was, and uh, I remember I went outside. It was, the snow was just melting. And there was a dead tribute band playing outside on the rocks. And I was like, I- I'll be out there. Because I just wanted to be outside and hear the music. You know, I've been in the house all winter. And, and man, I, I, I was I was like, I, I was ready. I, I didn't think I was coming out of this. And I was accepting it. And uh, we didn't went into that wedding, and um, most of the people didn't know I was there because they didn't recognize me you know, physically. Um, so it was about two weeks later. It, it was it was uh, April twenty fifth. Um, Greg called me. Greg Hunt yeah. asked me what then if I heard anything, and I said no. I said you'll be the next one I call though. Next time you hear from me. That means um, something happened. About 20 minutes later, the phone rang, and it was 215 Philly. And um, they told me they got me a liver. And I called my wife. She said, I said, get ready. We got to go. And she's like, where are we going? I was like, the beach. And you could hear her <laughs> banging off walls. Like, And uh, I called Greg back. And it was about 20 minutes. He's like, you got to be kidding me. I said, I don't know how you did it, but I'm on my way. So we uh, we got down there, and um, it, it was, like I said, a lot of my memories gone at this point, but I know I gave my wife a kiss and told her I loved her, and um, 17 hours later, I was done. And I was down there for about 14 days, I think, and... Um, they wanted me to come home and go to Allied for a while. Yeah. But but I, I was going home then. I said, I'm not going, don't, let's not make, save that for somebody there. And, and I, I went home and, and I went through a, a um, uh, you know, April recovery period was, I went back to work in, in like Christmas time. But I mean, the, the, the recovery was. A, half a year, over a year, half yeah, a year. It, it was a pretty rough go around. Um, what, what, it, what does it feel like? Your 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 liver is removed. You have a new one in there. Like, can you? What is the sensation of that? Like, what does it feel like? Outside of the scoring and you know major surgery, like, can you internally like? Are you feeling something different? Like, what does that feel like? So when I came home, um, I was singing a lot, <laughs> and I and I wanted to get a guitar, my wife's guitar from the attic. Yeah, and she's like, like this was like. 45 minutes I was in. She's like, you're not going in the attic getting a guitar. And I said, I, I really need to, she's like, not today. You don't yeah. need to learn how to play guitar today. 
because I didn't know how to play the guitar. Maybe the, the liver's from a guitar player. So I was back and forth with the gift of life um, through some communications. And what's the gift of life? Gift of life is the program who, who um, you know, if you are an organ donor, yep. your, your organs go to the gift of gift life. Of life. Yep. And um, then they will supply them with people, you know, organ um, yeah. donees in need throughout the country. And um, so if, if you are the a family member of the, the do- donor, um, you will be in contact and they will tell you what organs were donated. Somebody got whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And you can write a thank you note if they want to you can write a thank it. you yeah. note. Um, and so, so they now after the, the process, the gift of life comes to me with a counselor. Cause it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I have somebody's somebody lost a life to, to give me a life, a second chance. Um, So there was a thank you. There was a, there was, I wrote a thank you note. Um, didn't know where it was going. Didn't know anything about it. And a couple months later, it's not exactly a streamlined operation. They do what they have to do. I understand. But a couple months later, I got a response. Not knowing anything. I got a letter from gift of life. And, and, um, so then they asked if I would want to communicate with the donor's family. And I said, yes. So the, the first letter I got was um, no name, just a letter. No, no, I'm sorry. The, the letter that I did get, it was it had a name. And um, I'm, I'm not going to use names in here, but, it, but sure. the, the wife of the gentleman whose liver I got. And he had an accident on the 23rd and he fell off a roof and he was um, brain dead. And, and they made the, the, the decision to be generous enough to give his, his organs, up, which in turn saved me. Um, and, uh, but in this two paragraph letter of, of um, 25 years of marriage, she chose to write about that. He was a songwriter and a guitar player. Oh, wow. So what? <laughs> right. Of anything she could have chose to write about, that's what she wrote to me about. That's wild. And I had to go home and get this guitar. I'm a, I'm a skeptical guy. Most of my life, kind of cynical. But it's just so strange. It's so strange to not have some meaning. Um, so so the, that explains me going singing and wanting that guitar. And if there wasn't more to it, then why did she write about that? Why did she pick that or of everything? Well, out of everything that's possible. Of, of, uh, right. Everything that's possible. I'm just, it, you know, I don't sit and think about it often. I've, of what it's like or what it means, you can get an organ put into you um, to, that saves you. I've, I had an ACL replacement. And I would think even like a hundred years ago, you'd be out of commission for the rest of your life, like with a knee, that you're alive because there's another person's liver in you. It's wild. Well, I'm alive because um, of an unselfish thing um, that somebody chose to, to save my life. 
not knowing me, not knowing whose life they were going to save. But um, it's just an, it's an unbelievable gift that I was given, um, which, which all ties into my recovery. Because this isn't just, and it never was just about me. Um, but there's other people involved now. You yeah. know, I owe them that the, the respect to never drink alcohol again. I can say that I won't do it today. But as long as I get up every morning and say that. Um, and, and, and I just found, I just got in contact with, so, so fast forward a little bit again. We went through the letters, and um, then I got another letter saying that she wanted to, would it be okay to contact each other? And it was uh, five months ago or so, um, in, in the springtime. I got a, I, and I said yes, and I gave my information. And I had left a meeting, Peace and Serenity, and I got a text an email, I'm sorry. And I was at a red, a red light and I opened it. And here's the woman's name and phone number. And, and now it was like, it, this was real now. And I sat at the green light and I called Gina from Marworth. And she says, pull over. Are you having a panic attack? I said, I'm not sure. But so I'm like, it was very emotional to, to think that, that I'm going to speak to this woman. And I've since then spoke to her numerous times. We have a relationship. Um, it's not a big, fast moving. We're not going to go to Christmas dinner, but yeah, but sure. We talk. It, it, and um, wow. That's... And, and you know, she lost a husband. You know, two kids lost a father. So it's it's um, it's definitely an emotional situation. Um, but but it just gives me more of a reason. Um, and, and I originally got sober for my, um, for my kids and my wife and my family and my friends. And, and I just was able to celebrate three years the other day. That's uh, last Sunday. And, um, Congratulations. I, I, thank you. But I told them my wife came down and, uh, I gave her my, I never got a one year, one year um, coin because I was sober for, so, as I said, I didn't go to a, all through that time of, of the medical recovery, I didn't have any thoughts of drinking. I was in such physical ailments already because of the recovery from the, the transplant. But later that year, about October, I, um, I was going out a little more. People were... You know, I wasn't going to bars, but I'd be up our property, up our club, and, and people sure. drinking. And um, a lot of them, it was kind of like I had a like a the, the scarlet letter on me a little bit first. Like they didn't <laughs> want to go near me. Like they, I said, listen, this is my problem, not yours. If you guys are going to have some beers, I'm yeah, like, but stay ten yards, or you're going to catch some alcoholism. <laughs> right, you'll right. pick this up. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but but a, a friend of ours called me in like October there, it was right after a year sober. And, and he said, uh, you know, I know what you, you know, went through and stuff. And it's, it's one of our mutual friends from childhood, but he said, uh, I'm going to this meeting over in Naog. Why don't you meet me there Sunday? And, um, he's only been there a couple of times since, 
but that's all right. Cause I went that first Sunday. Yeah. I remember. And, yes. And, and it was so nice walking in and seeing you and, and a couple other friends of ours, because I don't know if I would have, what would have happened if I didn't, but a couple of familiar faces is all it took. And, um, I haven't left. You know, I haven't left. And, um, you know, it's four or five meetings a week. I actually just got to do my first um, commitment speaking engagement up at Avenue's Recovery Center. Yeah. Um, great, great experience for me. Great place. Um, and all of this, um, it just happened. I couldn't do this by myself. It's an accident. But, but because it is, I would never be able to stay sober. I don't think if I had this fellowship because um, I, I definitely felt like I was still missing something, some yeah. camaraderie, some, I enjoyed going out doing that stuff, bars and, and I enjoy going to the meetings. You know, you get to talk a little bit, you get to, you know, it, it's, um, it's definitely helping me. Um, and uh, I, I just hope um, that when I tell, let people know what I went through, at meetings and stuff that, that I could help somebody else. And, and this is, you know, I was, I'm, you do, I, I, I've, I've seen it happen. I watched it uh, even last week. Uh, speaking at Avenues, I heard some people up there mention that. Um, I'm interested in what is recovery in, the, in this realm using a 12 step program? What has it done to the dynamic of your family? You already deeply loved and admired. What did it change in the house? Well, I bring more too. Yeah. I feel as though that I'm, 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 I'm there for everything now. Now I really truly am. I'm there to their needs. They're why I'm not putting myself 120% constantly first. Cause I, I always really did that. It, it was for self-satisfaction. You know, I went to the, to the baseball game, look at how great I am, but now I better get to the bar because I'm probably missing something. Yeah. Um, now, now I'm truly there and, and focused on, on what's better for us. Um, everything so far in, in three, um, and I don't think you were there Sunday, but I was back to my coins here. So I got my two-year coin and I gave it to my wife the other day when I took my three-year coin because the first three were for them. Now I have to do it for myself because as long as I do it for myself, then I'll be there for them. You know, as long as I stay sober, then they have a good father, a good husband. And my friends have a good friend and, and I can be there for my family. Um, and it, it's just brought me so much closer with everybody. Um, and, and everything is getting better. My, my, the world was, I, I was in a hell that I crawled out of. Financially, it was a horrendous situation I had us in. Um, I got myself about half dug out of the hole that I've made in my life. That's pretty good. <laughs> it, it's not bad. For, and, yeah. and, and I just did it by accident. I just did it by accident. I, I go to the meetings. I, I, I don't do, and I was having a tough time about a year and a half ago, really bringing myself down, like, how bad, like, look what you did, uh, everything you put everybody. And then I had to finally get myself, like, if I kept dwelling on that, it, it would have. It's a trap. Right. It's a total trap, man. Um, 
you know, t- today's reflection, you know, it talks about looking at yourself in the mirror. Um, I, I was, I-, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Everything that was not going in the right per se for me, but I, I still had three beautiful kids, a beautiful, forgiving wife, um, forgiving God that I believe in, but the nice house, you know, the white pick fence. Like I, I had a good job. I had every, still have all of that. And I, it was all in place when I was doing what I was doing, but I never, never realized what I had. Never got to experience it. You were, you were, you were absent. Right. And, and, um, and I almost lost it all. I mean, it was, it was very close to me losing it all. And now it's just, by, by no fault of mine, it's getting rebuilt up around me with simple, simple steps of not drinking. Like I, I've known you my whole life, and the time I got to spend with you in conversations the last two or three years has had a profound effect on me. The way uh, I want to approach my family uh, when I hear you talk or we have little conversations, I, you know, I don't get to always express that to you, but I take away a lot. And I came back in humiliated. I was in early sobriety when we, we met again. And um, I, I am just so glad you're sober and, and, and could give insight to people who being in your scenario might not get out of bed and like, fuck, just give up. And that's not your story. That is not your story. It's a life lost and a life saved. And I think you're helping a tremendous amount of people. And I, that, that's why I had you on today because uh you inspire me and um, it's, it's, it's having friends like you that keeps me sober that I could talk to. I could call you anytime. Um, I think that's what a lot of people feel at the end of their addiction that will never happen to them. They're so isolated in their own head, their own drinking. Um, your story's helping a lot of people. What would you say to, uh, how, how do you, is there something I didn't ask? that you wanted to express? No, no, I think that that's about it, Joe. Um, uh, you know, just everybody out there, that, that they need to know there's help out here. Um, yeah. Like you said, I mean, I know your phone's always on. Mine is as well. And um, Well, there's new rules. I got to turn it off at nine. Well, I'm going to get yelled. <laughs> yeah. You will, you will see, you know, it's going to, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. So, um, I'm really glad you came by and I'd love to have you on again. And I hope you, uh, come in. Meet the guys in the next couple weeks. But uh, as a waggy. Wag, thanks for coming by. Thanks, Kendra. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, an engineering company, 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. 
If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.